Psalm number 66, to the chief musician, a song, a psalm. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken. When I was in trouble, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats, Selah. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. All right, we're starting chapter 46 today. We're going to be in uh, Genesis 46, verses 1 through 27, and this is entitled, So Israel Took His Journey. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 46 says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanach, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zoar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram with his daughter Dinah. With, with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erudi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Ishui, Berea, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea were Heber and Malkiel. 
These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Petiphera, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppen, Huppen, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, son of Dan, was Hashim. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalim. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore all these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's six sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, were, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were seventy. The past many stories which were focused on Joseph showed us pictures of the time from Jesus' death all the way through the church age into the point in history where Israel would again be revived as a people and that God's spirit would then be poured out on them. They showed us a woven tapestry which spanned over 2,000 years of history, clearly demonstrating that there was a plan for the world during Israel's time of exile and that there is a plan to keep Israel safe during the tribulation period. Now with today's verses, we're going to see the beginning of how God will use this group of people to bring the message of redemption to the entire world. Jacob will move to Egypt, and in this move, the list of those who accompany him will actually show us a picture of the macro plan of the treasure that they have brought to the world, the oracles of God, the Bible. A listing of 70 people will be used to show us the divine perfection of God working in the created order to bring the world the fullness of his message. And it is through this message that the world will hear about and come to know their Messiah. Our text verse today comes from Romans chapter 10. It says there, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul speaking about the Jewish people, asked as to whether they had heard the message of salvation found in Christ. His answer was, of course they have. And he cited three sets of verses from the three portions of the Old Testament to show that they, of all people, should know. Old Testament and New, it is all about the work of Jesus Christ. God has given us this word to show us Jesus. And the reason he did this is because Jesus is who reveals who God is. Without the Bible, then, we cannot know Jesus, and in turn, we cannot know God. So let's come to know God through his son, Jesus, and through the Bible, which tells us of him. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first one is visions of the night. This is verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. So Israel. In this chapter, the name Israel and the name Jacob will be used back and forth numerous times, sometimes even in the same sentence. There is Israel who struggles with God, and there is Jacob, the man of flesh and in need of his God. It is Israel who takes his journey and heads out. As tent dwellers, this would not be like us packing our stuff today. It wouldn't be the great challenge that we think of. Everything could be rolled up and moved in about an hour. And with the carts of Egypt, which were sent ahead of 
them to bring them back to Egypt, the traveling would be all the easier. The first leg of the journey is from Hebron to Beersheba. And according to Google Maps, it's 26.5 miles between the two. Beersheba is used synonymously many, many times in the Bible with the extreme southern border of the land of Israel. In 1 Samuel 3.20, for example, when speaking of Samuel's notoriety, it says this, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Dan is the northernmost point, which I've been there with my mother, and you can stand there and look at Mount Hermon up in Lebanon from there. And Beersheba is the last large town prior to heading into Egypt. It was given its name at the time of Abraham when he made a treaty with Abimelech, king of Gerar, if you remember that story. When they made the treaty, Abraham set seven ewe lambs off to the side as a confirmation of the covenant. Because of this, the name of the place was given. Be'er in Hebrew is well, and Sheba means both oath and the number seven. And so this is either the well of the seven or the well of the oath. Abraham and later Isaac both dwelt in this spot, and Isaac also made an oath there with Abimelech as well. Verse 1 continues, And offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Adam Clark says of this verse, Prayers and provender never hinder any man's journey. He who would travel safely must take God with him. Well, this is the case in all things, be it a business, be it seeking out a job, getting married, doing any other thing that we can do of major importance in our life. We would be foolish not to ask God first to bless what we're doing. Before we uh, moved into this building, when we first bought it, Paul uh, called me and he said he wanted to meet me over here. And he says, we need to pray over this, Charlie. And so we did. And uh, we've been praying over it ever since. I remember going over and praying for somebody's pizza business over here when he opened. This is this is what you want to do. If you're going to get married, pray about it. You know, ask the Lord to bless what you're going to do. And then pray about your marriage every single day that you're married. Because every day is a challenge. It really is. You know, I've been married for 30 years. And uh, uh, I know my wife probably prays over it more than I do. But uh, he gave me a great wife and she got the that end of the deal. But let's pray over the things that we're planning on doing to the glory of God and in petition for his favor. In the case of Jacob, who had traveled many long miles in his days, both within and without the borders of Canaan, he knew that his prayers and his petitions would be heard and they would be attended to by God. This is especially so because the Lord God had appeared to Abraham and spoken these words to him in Genesis 15. Here's what it says there. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell on him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be stranger and strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You should be buried at a good old age. But... In the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God spoke of a time when Abraham's descendants would leave the land of Canaan, but that they would also eventually be brought back into it. And the reason was given, because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. In his mercy, God allowed the inhabitants of the land to continue on despite their rejection of him. Only when their iniquity was complete, meaning they had completely violated any sense of humanity in his presence, was there no remedy left. 
and then their sin would be judged. And that shows you the great mercy of God because you look around at the nation that we're living in and how far we've turned from God. You know, he's on our lips all the time, like it says in Isaiah, and yet he's so far from our hearts and he hasn't yet judged us and he's giving us a chance to repent. And he gives us, you know, we look at earthquakes and we look at uh, uh, hurricanes and we look at 9-11 and we say, you know, why would God do this to us? It's because he's trying to get to us to wake up and to turn back to him and to humble ourselves in his presence. And yet we keep going down the same path. We were just going just like the Amorites until someday our iniquity will be complete. But like the promise to Abraham concerning his descendants, God spoke to Isaac the same thing, and he did so right here at Beersheba, the exact spot where Jacob now offer, offers his sacrifices to God. In Genesis 26, we saw this account. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And so here, at this place with so much family history connected to their God, he sacrifices. And there were probably several reasons for doing this. First, he wanted to give thanks to God for the restoration of his beloved son, Joseph, and for the great even the exalted position that he held. Secondly, he certainly wanted to petition him for his favor concerning this journey that he had just begun. And thirdly, he wanted to commit himself and his family to the covenant, which had continued on now for 215 years. In the same spot which held so much covenant history, and after the giving of his sacrifices, he prepares to leave his homeland, and God appears to him once again. Verse 2, then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, in one verse, the man is called Israel by the Bible and Jacob by the God who wrote the Bible. Though the Bible calls him Israel, God at the time he spoke with him calls him Jacob. Now, why would this be? Jacob has lived, as you know from these previous sermons, in a scared and in a faithless manner for many, many years. And so God comes to him on this level to pacify him and to comfort him. And he does it in a way seen very frequently in the Bible. He calls his name not once, but twice, Jacob, Jacob. The first time that this is recorded as having been done in the Bible was in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was just about to plunge the knife into his beloved son, Isaac, the Lord called out Abraham, Abraham. Now again, in this reassuring way, he calls out to the chosen son to let him know that all will be okay. And he does it in a vision. The word in Hebrew is marot. It's the plural of the word glass. As one looks into a piece of glass or into a shiny piece of metal to see a reflection of himself, this is how Jacob sees God. Not directly, but as in a mirror. It is reflective, pun intended, with how Paul speaks about our own understanding of spiritual matters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says these words, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. This is how Jacob now perceives God in a vision of the night. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night as through a piece of glass or in a shiny mirror. 
He was there to tell Jacob that all would be all right, to not fret or fear and to not feel any terror. Verse 2 continues, and he said, here I am. Jacob responds with the word hineni, here I am. In an interesting set of parallels, Jacob speaks this phrase only two times. The first was back in chapter 31 when God spoke to him and told him to return to Canaan after being away many years. And now this time when he speaks it, it is when he is leaving Canaan for what will be many long years in Egypt. And equally interesting is that his son Joseph responded with the exact same term, Hineni, when Jacob asked him to go see how his brothers were doing in the fields with their flocks. And that was the last time that he ever saw him. But it was the very thing that precipitated the move that he's now making to Egypt. And finally, the last time that this word, Hineni, will be used in exactly this manner is when Moses is called to be the one to return Israel to Canaan in Exodus chapter 3. It is an amazing set of parallels which show purpose and shows intent in the use of this word, Hineni, concerning the movement of the covenant people in and out of Canaan. Jacob called out in response to God, acknowledging the vision he has been given, here I am. Here I am, responding to your word. Speak to me and your servant will pay heed. I will hearken to you, my great and awesome Lord. Here I am, speak in this, my time of need. Our second thought today, all things have worked together for good. This is verses three and four. Verse three says, so he said, I am God, the God of your father. In reply to Jacob's words, here I am, God speaks directly to him. Anochi ha'el Elohe abicha. I, the God, the God of your father. The reason why he speaks this way is because of what it said in verse one. Jacob offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, why did he do this? The reason is that when Isaac was alive, there was also a famine, if you remember those stories. But God forbid him to go to Egypt. Instead, he was told to live in the land of Philist the Philistines in a place called Gerar. At that time, in Genesis 26, it says that the Lord Jehovah appeared to Isaac. <clears throat> and so all of these are being tied together. The Lord is God. He is the God. He is the all-sufficient protector and the one who is transcendent over time, over his creation, and it is he who monitors the covenant. All are tied into one. Jacob may have wanted to make sure that leaving the Canaan wasn't leaving Canaan wasn't forbidden like it was for his father. And so now the God speaks to him. Verse 3. It continues, "Do not fear to go down to Egypt." Because of God's command to uh, his father Isaac to not go down to Egypt, he may have feared leaving the land without divine approval. But there are other reasons why he may have been fearful. The first is the prophecy that was given to Abraham about their bondage and about their affliction. He may have also feared that living outside of the promised land would lead them to lose their promised inheritance or even forget that it was in fact their promised inheritance. Then he may have feared that it would lead his family into idolatry, which was at that time very quickly taking over Egypt. And because of these and maybe other reasons, he would need the assurance and direction from God to make the move. Well, I got to tell you something. If you take this and apply this to your own life, he may have feared about leaving the promised land. Well, if you have called on Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are in Christ. 
It is a positional move from being in Adam to in Christ, and you can never lose that. So you don't have to fear about what you are going to do because you are a part of the body of Jesus Christ. And you will never lose your promised inheritance. That's seen explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 4 through verse 7. It speaks about our, our calling on Christ. And it says that we are in him and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. That means that we are there positionally with him. Even though we're living in this world, and we've got all kinds of troubles and trials in us. We are living in Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly position. So we will not lose that as well. And finally, what about being led into idolatry? That's something that he was certainly fearful of for him and his family. Well, where's the answer to that? It's right here. If you know this book, you are never going to be led into idolatry because this is your mainstay in life. But if you don't know this book, you can get swept away by any wrong doctrine. You can get swept into anything that anybody says. And so, as we have in our Bible studies, I say, don't read the commentaries, but if you do, take them with a grain of salt. Go in and ask the Lord and read his word and keep reading it, and it will weave together and it will keep you on the right path. If you do read commentaries, no problem. Just make sure that you take them with a grain of salt until you're sure that that's what God intends for you. And we say that in our Bible classes as well. Don't trust Charlie. Go home and check what Charlie has said today, all right? This is the way to keep these things straight in your life. Verse 3 continues, For I will make of you a great nation there. Whatever worries he had are dispelled in this verse right here, and even a blessing is pronounced. In Genesis 35, though, he was already told this. Here's what it said. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Now Jacob can connect the dots. He was already promised this, but now he knows that the promise will be fulfilled in Egypt. It must have been like the ending of a mystery novel to him. Suddenly, all of the trials that he had faced, all of the sadness at the loss of Joseph, all of the times of weakness and lacking faith, and even the things that he was fearing right now were wholly apart of what God was doing. The fears, the sadness, the times of weakness, all of it was completely unfounded. God had worked it out for the fulfillment of his promises, and that time was now at hand. It must have been an amazing rush of relief and awe that filled him at this moment. It isn't that despite going to Egypt, the promises will be fulfilled, but because of going to Egypt that they will come about. Verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. In this verse here, the word I is emphatic in the Hebrew. God will absolutely be with him in Egypt and God will absolutely bring Israel up again. There is no chance of him or them being left alone in this darkened valley. As a way of stressing what he will do, God says, Ve'anochi alacha gam alo. And I will bring you up, also bringing you up. God will be with Jacob. God will bring up Israel. As the Bible states, so history records, the words were fulfilled in a great and in a mighty way. One important thing to realize is that by having been given these promises by the God of your father, meaning Isaac, it excludes any other claim on the land of Canaan by anyone else, including the church. We in the church are descendants of Abraham by 
faith. That's made explicitly clear in the New Testament. But the same is never said about Isaac or Jacob. Because the God of Isaac is promised the land, and then it's now promised to Israel, it can only belong to Israel, not anyone else. Their unfaithfulness in later years and through two exiles does not negate God's faithfulness to his own word. Verse 4 continues, And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. To put one's hands on another's eyes means that they will be with them at death and they will be the one to close the eyes of that dead person. God has promised that not only will the family be safe and they will be reconciled to his son Joseph, but that Joseph himself, the leader of the greatest nation on earth and his own beloved son, would personally attend to him at death. Nowadays, we have strangers do this, maybe a doctor or a nurse. But back then, it was considered the highest honor bestowed upon the most beloved. It is to Joseph that this honor will fall someday in the future. In death, Jacob will be with his beloved son. And for the Christian, no matter what our life is like, no matter where we are, no matter what trials we face, there is no fear in the valley of the shadow of death. We are now in and will never be separated from the presence of Jesus Christ. He will be there to put his hand on our eyes, and he will be there to lift them again in the glory of his presence. To Egypt, do not fear to go down, for I will make of you a great nation there. Have no fears or sadness. Do not weep or frown. I will be with you and dote upon you with tender care. This is how the Lord treats his child, though we often miss the fact that he's there with us because of trials which may be severe or mild, but he is faithfully at our side. He is the Lord Jesus. Our third thought today, departing Canaan. This is verses five through seven. Verse five says, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. The night has ended, the visions are over, and Jacob the man now prepares to leave the land of promise for the very last time. He has put his trust fully in the God who called him, who carried him, and who is now promised to be with him and his family during all of the times ahead. Borders, whether real or imagined, cannot contain the God whose spirit runs to and fro throughout the world. Though Canaan and his inheritance is going to be behind him when he leaves Beersheba, the Lord will always be at Jacob's side. And we're given exactly the same promise in the New Testament. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is there with us through every ordeal. Boundaries can't keep him out. We can't hide behind walls from his presence. If we go to the lowest pit or the highest heavens, he is there with us. Verse 5 continues, And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. The carts which were sent by Pharaoh are put to good use for those who needed them. Jacob once walked out of Canaan all by himself to Mesopotamia, and about 20 years later he walked back into Canaan with four wives, numerous children, and many flocks and slaves. Now at least two of his wives are dead, but he has more children and grandchildren with him, and they are conducted in royal fashion using the royal carts of Pharaoh. Verse 6, So they took their livestock and their goods which they acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all of his descendants with him. There is nothing in this verse which is disobedient to what Pharaoh said in chapter 45. There, when speaking to uh, Joseph concerning the move, he said these words, Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods. 
for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. Now in this verse, it says that they brought their goods, which they had acquired in Canaan. Pharaoh did not tell them they couldn't bring their goods, only that they shouldn't be concerned about them. Whatever they could bring would be fine, but whatever they lacked or left behind would be made up for in the abundance of Egypt. With their departing, other than Abraham's very short journey out of Canaan to Egypt during another famine, there has been a continuous presence of this family in the land for over 200 years. Abraham first moved to Canaan in the year 2084 from the creation of the world, and it is now the year 2298, or the 215th year since the promise was made to Abraham. From this date, Israel will spend another 215 years in Egypt before they are brought out by Moses and led to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Thus, it is exactly 430 years from the promise to the law, as Paul notes in Galatians 3, verse 17. It is going to be a time of great increase in the number of the people of Israel. Verse 7, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Starting in the next verse, the names of these sons and daughters and sons' daughters will be given. In all, it will only mention one daughter, Dinah, but he certainly had more, as is evidenced here and elsewhere by the plural term daughters. And in all, it will only list 70 recorded people who descended from him who went to Egypt. However, others also went with him. The names of the wives of the sons, for example, aren't listed. And there would have been many, many servants as well, possibly in the thousands. Whatever the number, though, it will be exceedingly small compared to the 603,000 550 fighting-aged men, plus women, children, and others who will leave Egypt in just 215 years. They will surely become the great nation that God has promised. Our fourth and final thought today, the family of Israel, and this is verses 10 through 27. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you all of those verses and give you just a very short analysis of them. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanach, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Now, as I'm reading these, I want you to ask yourself questions. Why does it say this, or why does it say that? There should have been one in your mind right there, but we'll go on. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon were Sared, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphian, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erudi, and, their, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Ishui, Berea, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea were Heber and Machiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these bore she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, the son of Dan was Hushim. 
the sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalim. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the persons, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were seventy. Imagine this. In the 215 years since Abraham came to Canaan until this point right here, there are only 70 names given of those in the covenant line. In the same amount of time, just 215 years from this point, there will be over 600,000 fighting-aged males. These, along with all of the others, probably numbered between 2 and 3 million people. God has the ability to make great and to reduce to nothing as is evidenced right here and throughout all the rest of redemptive history. The church, it started with one man. He added 12 disciples whom he called his apostles, and it grew exponentially to have become a number surely in the billions. When he resurrects us to eternal life, we will be standing in a great, great multitude. God can and he will accomplish the marvelous in and through his people. Now, I'm not going to go into any great detail concerning these 20 verses, but there are a few things to mention. The first is that out of all four of his wives, only Rachel is actually called his wife in this list. She was the wife of choice. The others were wives by circumstance. Then there's a problem with the numbering, which confuses almost everyone. I mean, you can read a thousand commentaries and get a thousand different interpretations of these numbers. First, verse 26 says 66 persons in all. Then verse 27 says, all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. And finally, in Acts chapter 7, which is in the New Testament, we read this. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. So there are three different numbers to deal with, 66, 70, and 75. For the first number, 66, we are told, all those who are with Jacob. So Jacob, Joseph, and his two sons aren't counted. That almost resolves the number of 70. But in the listing of Leah's offspring, there are only 32 names mentioned, even though it says 33. The 33rd was not born yet. She is Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, and the mother of Moses and Aaron. She is, numbered in, uh, she is named in Numbers 26, verse 59. Finally, in Acts, Stephen says Jacob and all his relatives. This then implies the counting of the unnamed wives of the sons, and it leaves out Joseph and his family who are already in Egypt and who, as Stephen says, sent for them. The reason for saying all of this is not to bore you with a bunch of numbers, but to show you that the Bible is not in error. The importance of the number 70 in this Old Testament account is that the names here are identified after the Exodus as the chiefs of the divisions of Israel. Israel is God's instrument for his redemptive works among humanity, which leads up to the Messiah. And of all of humanity, and you have to understand this, all of humanity is derived from the 70 names contained in the table of nations, which is in Exod or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10. In other words, the 70 names in Genesis chapter 10, which correspond to every person on earth, are to be given the oracles of God through these 70 names recorded in this chapter.
in the covenant people of Israel. And this is explained very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which says this, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, he separated the sons of Adam, Genesis chapter 10. He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. That's why these numbers are here. Seven, if you know, from many, many sermons, we've, we've gone through this. It's the number of spiritual perfection. It is the sum of the number three, the divine number, and four, the number for creation. Ten is the number for completeness. Once again, we've seen that in many, many sermons already. Thus, as those who are noted as Israel and who have gone to Egypt are God's divine plans, three, being worked out in his created order, four, which is seven, through the fullness, which is the number 10 in these 70 people. This is not an arbitrary list of names and numbers, but it is a prophetic plan and a symbolic structure of what God is doing in the history of man's redemption. These same uh, numbers apply to the seven churches in the book of Revelation during Israel's time of exile. During the church age, while Israel has been under God's punishment, those seven churches represent God's working and his plan of redemption. God bestowed grace on Adam after the fall, and what he did, he kept a select line of people all the way through those years until Noah, who again received grace in the eyes of the Lord. After the flood, God gave an overall structure of redemption as laid out in the Bible in that table of nations, the sons of Noah. After that, he called Abraham, and he made a covenant of grace to the world through Abraham, declaring him righteous by faith. Through the chosen line of Abraham's seed, he has refined what he is doing and what he will do in the future, giving us pictures of every single thing that is coming in redemptive history. And these pictures are what we have seen in all of these previous sermons since that time. You go back and you can look at all of our sermons and they completely cover the span of human history. The entire scope and the structure of redemption has been seen in these stories. Now, as these pictures have been realized, Jacob and Israel are going to Egypt to begin this long and meticulous plan preparing Israel for their role. This is the reason why the list here is divided into two sections, 66 and 70. Those 66 names reflect the 66 books of the Bible, which is the transmission of that spiritual message by the whole reflected by the 70 people. In verse 10, for example, a person named Shaul is mentioned. But unlike any other person in the list, it says this about him. Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Well, guess what? Others in the list were born of Canaanite women as well. But it doesn't mention them that way. Why? It's because he wants to highlight that he is a son of Simeon. Simeon means he who hears. What it's telling us is that he who hears is not just someone of pure Hebrew descent, but anyone who holds to the transmission of God's message, which is represented by these people. In other words, people like Luke, who was a Gentile, and yet he authored two of the books of the Bible. We are given these clues in this otherwise seemingly tedious list of names. Speaking of the base numbers, you got 66 and 70. The base numbers are 6 and 7. E.W. Bollinger spoke in his book, The Numbers in Scripture, about these numbers in the Bible. And he showed... He says that they show a combining and a contrasting of what is human, the number six, and that which is spiritual, the number seven. 
In other words, we can see in these two lists the mystery of the compilation of the Bible. The 66 books which are written by man under divine inspiration of God, 6 and 7. About this book which testifies to the grace of God, Albert Barnes says this, that it is with the most perfect exactitude to the benign reign of grace already realized in the children of God and yet to be extended to all the sons and daughters of Adam. It testifies to the work of the Messiah. It testifies to the grace of Jesus Christ. What seems arbitrary is not. What seems confusing is because we're looking at these individual trees instead of looking at the whole forest. If we can keep in mind the macro structures of the Bible, we can more clearly see what is going on in the individual details and why things are listed. And of all of the macro structures, there is one overall theme, which is that there is a God and that we are separated from him. In order to repair that breach, he has a plan to fix that. And the plan is centered on the grace in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. If we can always keep that in mind, then every other detail in the Bible becomes understandable. And despite the complexity of some of these details, the simplicity of the grace can be summed up in a few simple sentences. So I would ask you to let me explain to you once again the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. The Bible says that we are sinners, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We sinned and that's why we die. But the Bible speaks of two separate types of death. There is what is known as physical death. We're all going there someday, get put into a box and shoved in the ground. But there is spiritual death. And that occurred in humanity the moment that Adam disobeyed God. There was a, a rift between the two of them. And that is inherited in us. And because it's inherited in us, we are separate from God from birth. And Jesus Christ came to repair that breach. That's why he was born of a woman, but he has no human father. He did not inherit Adam's sin. He was born of God and of Mary, and so he is the incarnate God-man. He now is qualified to replace Adam if he can just fulfill the law. And so God gave us the four Gospels to show us that he fulfilled the law, that he lived perfectly, and then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for the things that you and I have done wrong. And so if we will simply call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. The gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you have never taken the time to simply ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and be reconciled to God, you can. And he will move you from Adam to his own precious son. And you will be free from condemnation. You will be free from the guilt of sin for all of eternity. Once it's done, it's done forever. And then God would ask you to live for him and to go out and tell people about this beautiful Savior who gave his life up for us and came out of the grave to prove it. The cross handled our sin problem, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that our sin problem is handled. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I got to tell you what. Our closing verse today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now... The Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Next week, we're going to have uh, Genesis 46, 28 through 34. It's entitled, A Glorious Reunion. Think of the emotion of this man who hasn't seen his son for 22 years. 
and now he's going to see him face to face, the ruler of all of Egypt. That's our 115th Genesis sermon. And before, just so you know, if you haven't been here before, I've done a poem of the entire book of Genesis week by week, and so we're going to do a poem as we do each week of the verses that we looked at today. And imagine the confusion with all those names in it. It wasn't an easy one. But before I read you my weekly poem, I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? This is called the journey to Egypt. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and sacrifices he offered to the God of his father, Isaac, the God of his dad. It is to whom his sacrifices were proffered. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Now I am filled with delight. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. Let it be no bother. For I will make of you a great nation there in fulfillment of the vow to Abraham. I did swear. I will go down with you to Egypt. I sow a prize and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and the wives that they had married. And the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him in these is how he transported them. So they took their livestock and their things, which they had acquired in Egypt, the land, and went to Egypt as the story rings. Jacob and all his descendants with him, just as planned. His sons and his sons' sons, whom on his knees he taught, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants with him to Egypt he brought. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt, which Genesis does tell. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These sons his crown did adorn. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar too, and Shaul, as the Bible does refer, he, a Canaanite woman, did come through. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kind of nice to have a name that rhymes with Ferrari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah, Perez, and Zerah too. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. So with three sons, he had to make do. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Being named in the Bible must be kind of cool. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, these four. The sons of Zebulon were for sure Sered, Elon, and Jalil, only three and no more. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padanaram, we see, with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, and Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Ishui, Berea, and sister Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea were Heber and Malkiel. That makes eight names to remember there, mister. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons, quite a brood that he brought her. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him, which made his eyes gleam. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, names that to pronounce are hard, and also Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, Jacob's beloved doll, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim, 
The sons of Naphtali were Jazer, Guni, Jezer, and Shalim. These were the sons of Bilhah, as we do recall, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body through his long haul, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were persons too. All the persons of this house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were seventy, quite a crew. Lists which seem tedious need extra attention and care, because many important treasures are actually hidden there. To read the Bible is both an honor and a delight, an honor because it is God's word given to us. But it also reveals that all will be all right because of the work of our Lord Jesus Where we are lost in sin with no hope at all, God reaches out to us with an offer exceedingly great. If we simply trust in the work of Jesus and on him call, he will seal us with his spirit for a wondrous date. He will glorify us and then for all eternity, we will behold his glory there upon the glassy sea. Thank you, O God, for the precious gift of life. Through Jesus is ended all our enmity and strife. Hallelujah and amen. All right, we're going to take our communion as we do. Uh, We've changed our order a little bit because some people want to participate with us in places around America. And so uh, we'll take our communion and uh, then we'll have a closing prayer. As I say each week, uh, the Lord has given us the instructions for the Lord's Supper, right? From the hand of Paul in 1 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, there he wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying a blessing over it as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment and just examine ourselves and how we can improve our relationship in the presence of the Lord.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you acknowledge the body and the blood? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as, is, as was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to come and meet in your presence today, and we're always in your presence. You're never, never away from us, but we can gather as a group, we can fellowship with other believers, and we can be renewed in your word, in your spirit, and in fellowship with you. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I know that there are needs in this room right now, people that have needs, things that are weighing on their lives, things that are weighing on their hearts, maybe financial needs or physical needs or emotional needs or whatever they are. Please look on them and attend to them according to the riches of your wisdom and mercy. And may your grace just flow upon them. And also for anyone who's watching on YouTube that... Uh, is participating with us today. Please be with them. Help them to uh, have just a, a, a blessed time in their lives and in their pursuit of you. Thank you again for allowing us the gift of your superior word, your precious word, which tells us of Jesus and how Jesus reveals your glory to us. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. All glory and all hail the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.